Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door. You picked a great day uh, to download this podcast or to tune in on the radio wherever you are listening from because we, in just a second, are going to be joining an interview with Dr. Mike Burhau, who has been running this show for the last couple of months, and special guest Dr. Stephen Meyer, renowned intelligent design author, writer, speaker. He's had a profound impact on, on all of us here at the C.S. Lewis Society. Uh, so this is going to be an awesome interview, and you'll actually have the opportunity to hear an extended version of this interview if you go to apologetics.org in the next few days. So check out the rest of this interview at apologetics.org, and let us know if you have any questions or comments at information at apologetics.org. Welcome to The Universe Next Door. My name is Mike Burhau, and I'm excited to have with me today Dr. Stephen Meyer. Uh, Steve, how are you doing? I'm very well. Thanks for uh, for reaching out. We're kitty corner across the country, I guess. You're in Florida. Yeah. I'm in uh, Seattle. So. Yep, different time zones. So it's taken a little bit of work to try to <laughs> to figure out a time that worked, but it wasn't too hard. So that uh, that works good. Uh, so Steve uh, received his PhD just to give a little background in the philosophy of science from the University of Cambridge. Um, you are a former geophysicist and college professor. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, I. Uh, taught philosophy and philosophy of science when I first uh, finished after Cambridge, uh, and I was a, worked as a geophysicist before going to Cambridge. So, gotcha. And uh, currently, you're at the Discovery Institute, and you're directing the science for of uh, science and culture, right? Center for Science and Culture, and the research effort that uh, is uh, our, our research effort on intelligent design. Excellent. Uh, well, when I first uh, got introduced to you, Steve, uh, I was actually a college student. So um, I remember way back when going to uh, South Dakota State University and a friend of mine gave me uh, it was a DVD called Unlocking the Mystery of Life's Origin. Uh, and that's where I first became introduced to you. Uh, when I was in grad school, I had a chance to read your book, uh, Signature in the Cell and uh, Darwin's Doubt. And most recently, you have a book here, uh, The Return of the God Hypothesis, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I'm excited to hear. I haven't had a chance to read this yet. I've read the first couple of chapters, uh, but I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Um, I actually actually just recently listened to an interview that you did with Michael Shermer, uh, and uh, it was encouraging because I've also listened to some debates that you've done with him in the past, uh, but it seems like his tone has changed a little bit. He's still not a fan of intelligent design. I think that would be fair to say, uh, but he did say in that interview that uh, this is not your father's creationism. This is far more serious. So it it seems to me that maybe opinions about intelligent design have been uh, changing over uh, maybe the last decade. I don't know if that's been your uh, perception, but uh, I'd like to hear from you on that a little bit. Well, absolutely. Uh, first of all, Michael's a great guy. I mean, he's a real congenial figure and uh, personable, and we had a really good discussion on his podcast. And I thought it was going to be for an hour, and it went went for two. You know, right. we covered all kinds of stuff. Um, 
but we've had a number of really high profile scientific uh, conversions or scientists who have uh, you know, maybe never thought that much about ID and then got exposed to it and realized, hey, there's a lot, there's a lot more science behind this than I realized. And, um, and so we have a number of projects we're, we're, we're supporting right now with uh, PhD students and postdocs working under senior scientists who are friendly to ID and doing ID-based research. So they're using the concept of intelligent design as a guide to research. So that's a, that's a, a sign of a, a maturing research program. Many of the initial books about intelligent design, including mine, we're making an argument for intelligent design based on evidence that we already have. Uh, for example, in the, my case, the evidence of the sophisticated digital nanotechnology that's inside living cells, the, the, the information bearing properties of DNA and RNA and the information, the evidence we have of an information storage, transmission and processing system inside even the simplest living cells. I've argued that that provides uh, powerful evidence of the activity of a designing intelligence. Um, but many of the researchers that we're now connected with, senior scientists are seeing in intelligent design a way of looking at life that's very different than the Darwinian reductionist materialist view and, and realizing that if that view of life is correct, then there are certain things about life that we should expect to find that we wouldn't expect to find if life arose by a gradual Darwinian step-by-step uh, -step sort of process. In other words, looking at life as a top-down product of intelligence rather than a bottom-up product of undirected material processes. And that's leading to predictions that can be tested in the laboratory. And so this is, a, I think, a very exciting development. And some of those predictions are being borne out as well. The uh, One good example is just the discussion about so-called junk DNA, which up until uh, 2009, 2010, you still had people making arguments against intelligent design based on the presence of junk DNA. Uh, the the so-called junk DNA is the, uh, it, it refers to the section of the genome that is not coding for proteins, which is what the, the classical um, molecular biological uh, explication of what's going on in the cell emphasized, which was the, the, the DNA uh, is translated into RNA, which then builds proteins. But um, the big sections of the DNA are not doing that. And so many neo-Darwinists thought that those sections were a consequence of the random trial and error process of mutation and selection, and that this was just an accumulation of mutational uh, errors over a long period of time, thus the name junk DNA. And many of the, the uh, early proponents of intelligent design uh, felt that challenge, but also thought, well, if our view is correct, then we ought to see that the, the, the non-coding region, we, we would expect that those non-coding regions of the DNA would turn out to be importantly functional. This was an explicit prediction that was made by, by William Dembski, by uh, Dean Kenyon, and uh, someone who was quietly thinking about ID and sympathetic to it, uh, Richard Sternberg, working in the field of genomics, began to, to investigate uh, these non-coding regions and was finding extensive evidence of their functionality. And uh, then the Big Int Code project came out in 2011, I believe, showing that the, the ID perspective on this was in, entirely correct. What we expected, what we predicted has been borne out by studies of the non-coding regions of the genome. So anyway, a good research program explains facts we already have, but it can also guide research 
and uh, help us discover new things that we might not have under, uh, discovered without the, the perspective of that research program. And that's beginning to happen as well as a great multiplication of uh, intellectual resources, uh, lots and lots of people coming into the ID, especially younger into the ID movement, especially younger scientists, but also that's happening internationally as ID research groups are popping up all over the world, uh, Poland, Italy, uh, uh, Austria, Germany, Israel, and uh, just explosive growth and in interest in intelligent design in Brazil. So uh, in fact, I'm gonna speak on September 11th to the Ibero-Americano Congresso on intelligent design featuring not just uh, uh, people from the US. In fact, I'm the only person from the US speaking on intelligent design. The others are professors from Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, uh, Chile. It's, it's quite exciting, the international growth in the movement. Yeah, that is exciting to hear. Uh, so, so with your new book, one of the things I've been wondering for a while, I've been following the intelligent design movement, um, like I said, since college. And uh, in your first couple of works, I mean, you're really making, uh, telling the story of the scientific case of intelligent design, starting with uh, the evidence that we have within the cell, uh, the Cambrian explosion. Uh, but now in this new book, uh, you're talking about the return of the God hypothesis. And one of the questions that, that I've always had, and when I've engaged with people who are maybe more critical of intelligent design, they've always been suspicious that it's, this is a religious movement, not a scientific movement. Uh, so with, with your new book, um, how, do you, how would you say that that fits within the intelligent design movement? There's obviously the science piece. Uh, yeah, just take it from there. So how does it fit? I, I think the suspicion is itself interesting because it presupposes that something can't be both, that, um, that science has no religious implications. Um, and of course, people would like to stigmatize intelligent design as something that is based on a set of religious presuppositions. But this was something that Michael Denton laid out in his book, Evolution of Theory and Crisis, all the way back in 1985. He said, the case for intelligent design is based on, on a strict application of scientific reasoning. Uh, it may have religious implications, but it's not based on scientific, uh, on, on religious presuppositions. And um, so, you know, a, a lot of people want to, to convict intelligent design of the sin of religious belief uh, as if that would make it inherently disreputable. But we've long said that intelligent design may have larger religious or philosophical or worldview implications. And what I did, have done in this book is simply to spell out what I think those implications are. I'm not speaking for all of the ID movement uh, in, in, in uh in suggesting that the evidence we have from a number of fields in uh, the natural sciences collectively supports an inference, yes, to intelligent design, but even more broadly and more specifically to a theistic uh, design hypothesis. So um, uh, to understand the theory, of, the, the theory of intelligent design is a theory that's based on uh, scientific evidence and established methods of scientific reasoning. And we have long said it also may have uh, theistic or uh, uh, certainly non-materialistic philosophical implications. And what I've done in this book is simply uh, explain what I think those implications are. Yeah. And I, I know at the beginning of the book, uh, one of the things that's interesting, maybe on the other side of uh, is, are there religious implications to intelligent design? You actually tell the story of how science was actually birthed in a religious context 
specifically a Judeo-Christian context. So I'm wondering um, if you could elaborate on those chapters just a little bit. Uh, is this sure. just a historical accident, or is there a reason why uh, the Judeo-Christian worldview gave rise to science? Well, it's interesting. I think most historians of science who study the period of the scientific revolution agree first that that what we call modern science uh, was birthed in a Judeo-Christian milieu or context, and that it it was so birthed for uh, specifically Judeo-Christian theistic reasons. Uh, we didn't, didn't need to tip our hats a bit to an earlier form of Islamic science that was also theistic, kind of died out. Uh, but th there was there was Islamic scholars made some very significant contributions. I was in this book tracing the history of of, um, of science in the West, in particular. And if you look at the period of what's known as the scientific revolution between it's often dated between 1500 and 1750. Increasingly, historians of science are seeing that really the roots of it stretch back further into the late Catholic Middle Ages. Um, uh, developments in, um, in methods of reasoning that are essentially the, the basis of scientific methods of reasoning that were taking place at the University of Oxford and at University of Paris. Figures like Robert Grosstest and Roger Bacon. Uh, we're making really significant innovations in styles of reasoning that led to effective ways of interrogating nature, of investigating nature. But we think that the, the period of the, the, the sort of agreed upon period of the scientific revolution, we look at figures like Kepler and Boyle and Newton, these were, these were almost uh, exclusively very religiously devout uh, investigators of nature. And they were investigating nature for very specifically religious reasons. There's a wonderful book by Rodney Stark, the uh, uh, former University of Washington, now Baylor historian science called, uh, titled For the Glory of God, published with Princeton University Press. And uh, Stark, uh, Stark explains that, that this was the motivation of the early scientists. They were trying to bring glory to God by revealing through their study the, the design and the order, the mathematical harmony, and the intelligibility of nature, that nature was clearly a system that, that, that revealed a, a, a hidden rationality. And so one, one of the key ideas of the scientific revolution, in fact, was the idea that nature was intelligible, that because it had been made in the image of a rational creator who had also made our minds in, that, in his same image, there was a principle of correspondence between what uh, Sir John Polkinghorne, the, the uh, recently, uh, re recently died, a Cambridge physicist who became an Anglican cleric, um, Polkinghorne talked about the reason within matching the reason without, that there's a, there's a built-in uh, rationality in nature that we can perceive because we've been gifted with the rationality of God, who also is the source of the rationality in nature. So that was one, just one key, key idea. I, I, I look at others, like the idea of the, the contingency of nature, the idea that God, yes, built an order into nature, but the order could have been otherwise, because God is a free moral agent, and he could have chosen to build all kinds of different order in nature. So we can't just deduce what would seem to be the most rational way of building the universe from a kind of standpoint of armchair philosophy, we've got to go and look at nature to see how we actually build it. And this led to empirical methods of investigation. So a number of theological ideas 
were key to uh, giving the impetus for science, but also uh, key to developing an empirical science that relied on observation and, and much less on uh, kind of uh, uh, a priori philosophizing as, as some of the Greeks were prone to do. Right. Yeah, that's good. Uh, so after those chapters, then um, you start to, to walk through the case then uh, for how science uh, gives us reason to believe in, in a God who transcends the universe. You talk about the Big Bang, the fine tuning of the universe, uh, the origin of life, the Cambrian explosion. Uh, so could you just take a few moments to walk through that overall argument that you're making and why you think that presents a case for uh, a transcendent uh, God of the universe? Yeah, maybe one way just to explain this uh, briefly in an interview form is, by, 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 is to first explain what I'd done in the previous books. With Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt, I argued that the, the information-bearing properties of living cells and living animals suggested the, the, the prior activity of a kind of master programmer. Uh, Bill Gates has famously said, DNA is like a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever created. We know from experience that programmers, uh, the programs come from programmers, they come from intelligent agents, and that information, especially information in a digital or alphabetic or typographic form, always arises from an intelligent source, whether we're talking about a computer program or a paragraph in a book or a newspaper headline or information embedded in a radio signal, information is the product of intelligence. We've got a four character digital code at work inside the DNA molecule. It's part of a larger information storage, transmission and processing system. Richard Dawkins recently tweeted that he was, he was knocked sideways with wonder at this digital nanotechnology that's, that's at work inside the cell, and uh, he he was said he was in even more uh, you know awe of the scientists who had worked it all out. But what he didn't say was anything about how it originated. And um, he had previously acknowledged in an interview with Ben Stein in a film about ten years ago that quote no one knows how life first arose with all that uh, he, he referred to it as a signature of intelligence, but then attributed that intelligence to, if if intelligent design was in fact if it did in fact play a role in the origin of life, he suggested it would have had to come from an intelligence in, in outer space that itself evolved by some prior undirected materialistic or chemical evolutionary process. Um, I made the case in signature in the cell or a case in signature in the cell for the intelligent design of life based on its information bearing properties, but I didn't attempt to identify the de designing intelligence. And there's two obvious possible uh, sources of that intelligence, if, if in fact we're looking at evidence of a design, which I, I, I've argued that we are. One is the space alien designer that, uh, that uh, Dawkins alluded to, which Francis Crick actually proposed at one point. It's a theory called panspermia, uh, an, an intelligent agent imminent within the cosmos. The other possibility is the idea that we're looking at evidence of intelligent design and the source of that design is a transcendent intelligence aka something like God. Um, and so what I did in the book was I reprised those biological arguments, but then asked my readers to consider other evidence that could help us adjudicate between those two great possibilities. And I looked uh, at evidence from physics in what physicists call the fine tuning of the universe. This refers to the exquisite and highly improbable um, uh, set of physical parameters 
the, the values and strengths of physical parameters that make life possible. Sometimes physicists talk about the fine, the fine tuning as uh, uh, they refer to the, uh, our universe as a Goldilocks universe. The elementary particles are not too heavy, not too light. The force that's responsible for the expansion of the universe outward from the Big Bang is not, is not too strong, not too weak. The other fundamental forces of physics, the uh, uh, electromagnetic force, gravitational force, the strong and weak nuclear forces fall within very narrow tolerances um, outside of which life would be impossible. Even basic chemistry would be impossible in the universe. And so you have this, this array of factors that, that have very precise values and strengths that fall within these very narrow limits that allow life to exist in the universe. And collectively, they're immensely improbable, almost beyond computation. And there is no underlying physical reason for these values having the values that they have. So this fine tuning is one of the very powerful evidences of design. But interestingly, many of these parameters are set from the very beginning of the universe or very soon after and would have been in place long before any alien intelligence or even our intelligence could have evolved to, um, to determine them. So clearly no space alien intelligence, no imminent intelligence within the cosmos could be responsible for the design of the entire universe itself and for the fine tuning of the parameters that make its own life possible. So in presenting the fine tuning evidence, I had in mind the, the idea that that evidence was going to help us adjudicate between these two competing design perspectives, an imminent versus a transcendent intelligence. And then I also discussed the evidence for the origin of the universe itself and the, what's now known as the Big Bang Theory or perhaps the inflationary cosmological model, both of which presuppose that the universe itself had a beginning. And the evidence we have from modern astrophysics and cosmology has amply supported that conclusion that as best we can tell, the universe itself, the, the physical universe of matter, space, time, and energy came into existence a finite time ago, before which we cannot invoke matter and energy as a cause, because after all, it's matter and energy that come into existence at that point. We can't invoke a prior physics because there is no physics yet. There's, there's, there are, there's no physical reality until the physical universe comes into existence. So the, the, the uh, origin of the universe a finite time ago, uh, I think, presents a unique explanatory challenge to uh, any kind of scientific materialistic construct and instead suggests the need for some sort of external creator to the universe. Um, theism and also deism posit a, a creator that exists independent of the universe and um, who, who has great power and intelligence. And therefore, if such an entity exists, it could provide an explanation for the origin of the universe in, in a finite time ago, whereas materialism lacks explanatory resources to do that. Uh, so in looking at, at, at in broadening the, the search window, looking not just at evidence from biology, but also evidence from physics and cosmology, uh, I was able to present a case for a theistic design hypothesis is the best overall explanation. If you look at those three classes of evidence, you see evidence of a transcendent uh, cause, which is also intelligent, capable of fine tuning the universe, and which also must act long after the beginning in order to explain the origin of the information and the, the, uh, the complexity of living cells. So a transcendent intelligence that is also active in, in nature is a picture of 
a theistic God rather than a space alien or even a deistic creator who a deist, positing a deistic creator might explain the origin of the universe and its fine tuning, but not the origin of anything that happens long after the beginning, such as the origin of life, with the evidence of design that it now presents to us. So thinking about the deist uh, version of creating the universe, could you explain why more specifically why that doesn't work, like a front-loaded version? What what makes that not uh, plausible in your mind? To hear the answer to this question from Dr. Stephen Meyer and the rest of the interview, go to apologetics.org. Well, thank you for listening, and we'll see you back here next week on The Universe Next Door. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in The Universe Next Door.